for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at TNTradio.live. Deconstructing PSYOPs, propaganda, and mainstream media garbage. Connecting the dots. You're with Matt Arrett and Connecting the Dots on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome to Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio. I am your host, Matt Arrett, and with me today for the first part of the uh, the show is Joaquin Flores, a good friend. Many people who have heard past shows have already heard Joaquin in action He is a director of the Center for Syncretic Studies. He is the curator of the Telegram channel, New Resistance, one of the most important Telegram channels that I follow every day. I think it's one of the most insightful things on Telegram that I recommend everybody check out immediately. Um, He's a great writer, an excellent analyst with a good sense of historical dynamics. So, Joaquin, thank you for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, uh, there's a lot to talk about. We're entering right now um, a period of turbulence let's just say that as far as the journey of humanity in the grand scheme of things there are periods of 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 the good times and there's periods of serious turmoil sometimes that turmoil is not dealt with um by responsible people who should do what they should do or who do what they should do and instead we have collapses we have dark ages that litter that you know human history Obviously, this could go downhill very fast, but we also have um, a fight against this new world order agenda, the depopulation agenda. And so there, the future is underdetermined as we go into the new year. Um, a lot of points uh, to, to talk about. And, uh, and what I like about you, Joaquin, in your analysis and just chatting with you is that you are also sensitive to the, the fact that History and the future is based upon individuals making decisions around ideas that are true or false and that the future is very underdetermined. A lot of people are quick to start complaining that everything is is screwed, everything is controlled, it's all controlled opposition, or they're inversely just completely eating the the stake in the matrix saying, you know, everything's fine, don't worry about it, just, just things will just work out. This is the kind of blind, uh, silly faith absurd uh, this absurd form of naive faith um you're a realist you know things could go dark but you also have a sense of the fight um what is your we'll start with a big question before we zero in on on some details what's your general sentiment right now are you an are you an optimist going into the new year and into the the many years to come into the 20 21st century or are you pulling towards the cynical side matt going into the coming year coming into the next uh you know, five, 10, 15 years, uh, there's a lot of things that I'm actually optimistic about. Um, the the things that we're seeing happen uh, globally in terms of a reorganization of the global economy, um, even though we hear a lot of, uh, I would I would call it uh, birth pains <laughs> coming from the controlled media paradigm, coming from oligarchical controlled mainstream corporate media. Um, but that's just their that's just their orientation, right? Because they're they're looking at a world changing and their way of doing things and the way that they have grown accustomed to making money and staying in power is, is so much connected to the way that things have been conducted for the past, you know, number of decades, even, even centuries. So, you know, we are actually in a very uh, large uh, transition uh, economically, geopolitically, and, and, more so than you know you might uh talk about in terms of like let's say 
um, the um, the information age or something like that. So in, in other words, um, the types of changes that are, are happening are much more paradigmatic than simply, um, you know, the, the types of technological changes uh, that have been implemented in terms of either scientific or consumer goods for the past, let's say, 30 or 50 years. Um, this is a much bigger change uh, because of the way that the world is organized, right? In terms of supply line security, supply chains, who's producing, who's consuming, how much can they do in those arenas and so forth. So I, I separate my analysis from the, um, like I said, the the birth pains or the cries or the the um, almost uh, hysteria that we get from so much of the mainstream media um, they, of course, want to to transform their own uh, uncertainties and insecurities about the future into calls for action, calls for action, whether it's climate change, whether it's, you know, more pressure against Russia, whatever it is, it, it is it is based upon their lived experiences. And, and it's real for them. You know, it's real for them, but it's not our reality. So I'm optimistic about mm -hmm. that. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a that's a good way to start this point out. Um, now, there are a lot of different points to touch upon that I know the the viewers are and and listeners to the show are are thinking about. You are somebody who is based in Serbia. You're following things very, very closely as far as different color revolu revolutionary activities, uh, asymmetrical warfare operations, things like that. Um, I'm hearing messaging coming out of the Russian Foreign Ministry, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, which is pointing out that the West is uh, discussing replacing Zelensky, that the Ukraine gambit has reached its its max and beyond, um, and that there's a discussion to replace Zelensky. Is there anything to it? And if they did replace Zelensky, um, who would they replace him with? And would it be better? So there's a couple of things that have been coming out of media. Um, we know that that Zelensky's team, uh, when uh, the uh, <clears throat> Zelensky went to go to Argentina, uh, he was denied entry into Brazil, um, and then he went to the United States. And in the United States, this happened about a week ago. Um, his his team came before him by by a, a good weekend, maybe five working days, even um, including Yermak and others in his cabinet. And the the inside story is uh, coming from Resident Ukraine, which is a Ukrainian website, uh, that the main request from his team led by uh, Yermak at the time was to remove Zeluzhny, uh, who's the head of the practically the head of the armed forces and a very respected general on on the Ukrainian side. Um, and his respect comes from. Uh, his the perception of his competence in addition uh within the kind of the back and forth within the ukrainian inner fighting about as we had that counteroffensive that started um at the beginning of june um it, it Zeluzhny was warning from the very beginning that without for example longer range missiles and air support and let's say attack uh, helicopters like russia has that their counteroffensive would have a very difficult time of succeeding. And it, it looks a lot like Zelensky was behind kind of like the political uh, push. And, and it, for those reasons, 
Um, people have said that it, it reminded them very much of a famous World War II battle, Battle of Kharkov, in which the um, the uh, Battle of Kursk, in which the um, the Nazis had delayed their their offensive for quite some time, and uh, for political reasons were trying to accumulate force and felt for political reasons that they had to attack, and um, and. And this seems to be like a parallel that happened, you know, a problem between the politics on one side and rational minded military thinking on the other. Um, so Zeluzhny is popular, but a lot of the stuff about Zeluzhny versus Zelensky, even though, and I've talked to some sources um, in, in Moscow, uh, in, in politics that say that this is a, a popular theory within Russian society too, but most of that energy or most of that reportage is coming from the uh, Western and Ukrainian sources. So it's sort of, mm -hmm. you know, take, take, take it for, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Um, right. But yeah, there, there are, there are also Arestovich has talked about who's a former Zelensky um, advisor. And uh, he's similar to Zelensky in a lot of ways in terms of his background um, with the exception that he had several years of military school um, officer school uh, at the Odessa um, school. So he's different in that he has a, a probably a better grasp of the, uh, over Zelensky on military things. But similarly, he has a background of being an entertainer, a schmoozer, a, a kind of a person that gravitates towards, let's say, uh, London and New York City vibes. Uh, he's into Broadway. He's uh, also <laughs> someone who is cross-dressed in television commercials and things like that. So he's an entertainer as well. Um, but he he is also an interesting person uh, biographically. So um, he was active around Eurasian youth uh, movement stuff, uh, held conferences, was adjacent to uh, people like Alexander Dugan and on you know hosted uh, co-hosted panels and things like this. So he he has his his uh, you know different times in his history. He's had his finger like kind of like in different pies, um, and um, but it looks like he'd like to run. Uh, I don't know how seriously, you know, he would be taken um, within Ukrainian society, but if the right, you know, kind of alignment of oligarchs and forces in the U.S. were kind of behind him, then, then maybe you'd have something. So, um, but there are others, you know, there, there you kind of have, you have Poroshenko, you have the usual suspects, you have people, you know, even maybe uh, grandma, you know, Timoshenko might want to, you know, make a, a, a stab at it. Who knows? Um, all of these things are possible. But here's the problem. There are no elections happening in Ukraine anytime soon. Right. Right. So we're not talking about uh, an election. What we're talking about is, you know, what does the U.S. think about how should Ukraine be led and, you know, what are we doing with it? Um, there are some creeping new rumors that the Ukrainian side might even announce that they're going to try another counteroffensive in 2024. Um, and, uh, this seems to me to be a disastrous change in their narrative. They had, if I may, just kind of arrived at how to explain why we need $60 billion. And it looked like they were, um, hinting at, we need this to dig in so that we can build a complex echelon system of defenses, like much like, uh, Ukraine, uh, Russia had built, um, mm -hmm. 
and that's something that people could believe in. You know, I, I think from a, a strategic, tactical and technological perspective in terms of available pieces and what Ukraine would actually be able to get their hands on. I don't think that such a defense system would work, but at least you could understand how as a spending as a as a category for spending, it makes sense. Right. Like so Russia's now on the offensive. They have the initiative right now um, in about. 50 to 60 different areas over the past week or two, Russia has made advances compared to maybe one or two places that Ukraine has been pushing without really any success. And, and so people kind of understand that Russia is now moving and Ukraine is playing defense. And so it made sense to say, hey, we could put this money towards defense. Um, and then you know, after a year or whatever, and Russia doesn't make that much progress, maybe they'd like to end the war, maybe we'd like to end the war, and then come to some kind of ceasefire. They were talking at times, even Arestovich mentioned his knowledge that higher-ups had discussed the, the Korea option, for example, right? Having a, a, a basically a line, maybe at the Dnieper River, and dividing things kind of a, you know, east-west type of thing. So, um, the New York Times just released a very interesting story talking about how um, the government, how Zelensky's government had effectively been breaking the law in much of its efforts to um, force people into conscription. Right. And uh, so it's, you know, I think a lot of people knew that already, um, including the folks over at the New York Times. So the timing of that, because that just ran like yesterday or today, today's December 16th for folks yeah, this, this has been going on. This has been going on for for already almost two years, eighteen months, and they're only picking this stuff up now. Um, but the the fact that they're choosing now at this moment to put this out as a public messaging does imply that some decisions, or this is a reflection of internal deliberations being made in a higher uh, policymaking channel that we're not uh, necessarily privy to. That's yeah, that's interesting that they're that they're trying to derail or at least turn the uh, the trajectory of this thing into another direction. That's a uh, but do you really think that they're going to go for a uh, another counteroffensive after all of the 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 life lost and disastrous embarrassments of all previous attempts? And it, you know, it's it's at the very best if they could muster a, a a plan that would sound like it could work, then it might lead to Russians digging in places instead of taking hmm. you know further in the initiative they've begun, but. It's hard to see that as credible unless you had, you know, literally, you know, 500 tanks, two or 3,000 uh, infantry fighting vehicles or armored uh, vehicles. Um, it, you would need, you know, 100, at least 50 F-16s. You need a couple hundred attack yeah. helicopters. I mean, you have to be able to use them in ways that we've seen the Russians use them effectively. Um, yeah, you'd have to train your people to be able to wield these yeah, things on top of that, of which is months training. and months. And yeah, they did. Yeah. That's right, Matt. Thanks for reminding me. You know, they they only were uh, managed to train between thirty or forty thousand people between Germany and England. Um, some reports say as few as twenty five thousand. But the goal for the June counteroffensive, which was supposed to start in March or April, got pushed back and was say they said we're going to do it in May. And then they did do it in May, if you think that May has 37 days. And then um, what seems to have happened is <laughs> what seems to have happened is they lost a lot of equipment, like in the first week. We're talking 
a, a very uh, high, uh, large amount of equipment. So, yeah, you know, I, I, right. I, you know, it's it's it is crazy talk to be to be clear, because it's like, oh, now there's going to be equipment that we know doesn't exist. And th- all the Yeah, it's they don't have the 155 millimeter shell. They don't have production for those. Even in two or three basically years. what you're saying, what you're saying is there's a lot of self-deceit and illusion right now going on. Uh, people drinking their own Kool-Aid and not really thinking about what was spiked in it. Um, but let me say this. Let's yeah. let's put this on it. We'll go. We're going to go for a quick commercial break and then we're going to come right back to connecting the dots on TNT radio live. You should hear what Charlie Robinson is talking about. I think once we saw the supply chain issues uh, that happened during the COVID debacle, you go, well, that seems bad for the, you know, when you're fighting somebody for toilet paper, but it could be worse, right? It could be the last can of food. So people are starting to reevaluate and reassess their situations and their relationship with supply chains and the like. And I think what that does is it leads you to a place of saying, how can I make myself less dependent on the system? It's kind of hard to know where to start, right? Where would you suggest we even begin with this process? Yeah, it's funny you said that because someone said to me recently and it made me laugh that this is going to be the kind of collapse where the Burger King's still open. I I think that's what's probably lulling people into a false sense of security in that everything when we go to the city kind of appears normal unless you're in one of those really crazy drug adult cities. But for most people, I would say, Charlie, it feels normal, but it ain't normal. (laughs) The world is not normal. It's completely gone off kilter. Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me, and I was trying to figure it out, and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old. And it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. What do I love about riding? It's the thrill. The excitement. Riding gives me a sense of freedom. I feel so connected to the road. Riding is like therapy to me. It makes me feel alive. Love riding? Back off. 
If you're still wearing a cloth or surgical mask around in public, you're guilty of spreading COVID misinformation. It really is that simple. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're back with the second segment of our first get our first hour. Uh, I got Joaquin Flores that we've been speaking to about geopolitical situations internationally, but specifically Ukraine. I wanted to carry this forward a little bit further before shifting gears a little bit. Um, this week, uh, Ursula van der Leyen exclaimed that we've achieved a historical moment in world history uh, with Viktor Orban saying we're not going to necessarily veto this discussion about Ukraine's entry into the European Union or into the, the, the whole European boondoggle. Um, is that true? Is, is it because I'm getting a lot of mixed messaging? I'm getting some messaging from the Ukrainian, uh, the Hungarian foreign minister saying, well, actually, that's a little bit of a miss, a misrepresentation of the, the actual situation. Is, is Ukraine going to join the the eurozone the european union or is are we just getting no, propaganda is not going to join the european union in our lifetime um unless you know uh things with such a low statistical probability of occurring occur um it's there, there's so much misrepresentation to the public about the process um and what the eu actually is and how it functions and so like the type of, they would need to make so many changes to the EU to allow a country like Ukraine to join, but that would be Ukraine, like complete Ukraine. So just sort of to reverse a little bit the, what the chronology of the mix-up was that, so by and large, it's been clear that Hungary, but there's other states as well, including France. I mean, Macron just made a statement that that there's no chance that Ukraine's going to enter the EU anytime soon as well. So, so these are not bizarre things that Orban has said. In fact, they are in line with with every study and every assessment that's been made at the official level. So it's it's just an inconvenient truth that that's actually what the EU thinks. But then you have EU commissioners, you have the, the you know Zelensky's media team, you have um, Western media creating an alternate reality that doesn't reflect actually what the EU, the commission and other and, and their, their committee on new member states has already found. Right. Like there's a there's a number of areas that Ukraine not only falls short, but even in the areas that they don't fall short, they're actually not compatible with the economic needs of countries like Latvia, uh, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, just for instance. So it's, it has to do with the volume of goods, prices and market distortions that occur. And, um, you know, then you get into the fact that the it would probably take three, four years for um, EU countries to agree on what a special case like Ukraine would be. And this is so hypothetical, Matt, because we're talking about a uh, Ukraine that's not at war. So, so you can't have an EU country, you know, have a border dispute, be at war with a nuclear mm. power or, you know, whatever, right? This is not possible. Um, and then what makes Ukraine interesting to the EU um, potentially are, are uh, consist of places like the Donbass and Crimea, which together make up, I mean, depending on the estimate between 60 and 80% of Ukraine's economy, that, that discrepancy mm. has to do with to what degree you project or financialize those assets, you know, because those are real assets, that productive assets, industrial and natural resources. And, um, and so that's not realistic that, in other words, Ukraine must first win the war, 
you know, um, no one believes that that's going to happen. So then you're talking about, let's say, assume a Ukraine that only has uh, the agricultural stuff, which is what it has right now, by and large. Um, well, that's just terrible for other grain producing countries like Bulgaria and Romania, right. et cetera. So they they won't allow it. I mean, you have right now, right? Like the, the Polish have been at the border. They've been protesting. They petitioned government and, and the government has put a blockade um, on Ukrainian goods. So these are things that the EU had wanted Poland to be lax about. And Poland was lax about it for like a year. A year and a half with the, with the, with the new with the new uh, president of Poland or prime minister. I'm well, forgetting no, now pri- which one. Prior with the past president. I mean, that was with one the, of the things that probably cost, you know, the out uh, that that probably caused us to return. It probably caused yeah. the outgoing guys to lose because they had. Is, ta- so is Tuscan is Tuscan re- reverse those uh, those more sane policies or is that is so he, he going to continue? Well, he's talking that way because he's trying to line up support and line up his ducks and then do some kind of sequence of, of stunts like he's known to do. But realistically, mm-hmm. no. I mean, realistically, no. It, the, the incentive from the United States would have to be so great. But then it's like, what is the U.S. really trying to do? I mean, they're not actually serious about trying to, um, you know, Further the conflict with Ukraine, so um, they they don't have. Um, it would be great for them if Europe would somehow have taken on the the burden, um, but burden sharing has been a dead end. There has been generally a failure uh, on the part of the U.S. UK to to get the the Franco German power, what we call the EU, to um, to um, take more of the burden in this conflict. So. Um, the last piece was maybe that 40 or 50 billion could come from the EU. And that's now going down. As, I mean, these are just things that are leaked and hypothesized and they generate headlines, which gives the wrong type of people the wrong type of hope for five or six days. And then reality kicks back in. And it's this very strange drug that we seem to be on uh, in media, like surrounding, I would call it the process of grief. Right. Like the stages of grief and you kind of have like denial, anger, bargaining, acceptance and stuff like that. And we're kind of getting towards that stage of acceptance, you know, but there's been that kind of bargaining and denial and this kind of back and forth stuff going on. And that's what you see, I think, largely in press. Yeah, it's interesting to be living through these sorts of times of systemic rupture, systemic change, because in previous ages, previous years, uh, there was a relative coherence behind the visual um, messaging or the the messaging you would hear in the corporate media and the so-called reality you were allowed to believe in um, that maybe they were two different things, but there, whatever the oligarchy, those controllers of the, the, the big narratives wanted people to believe, there wasn't too much challenging those beliefs. So whether it was around the cause of why two buildings or three buildings collapsed in America, or the the reasons why we had to just go in and overthrow um, certain leaders for the public, for the greater good in the Middle East, like Gaddafi. We were given certain messaging, and that wasn't really questioned so much. And all of a sudden, in the recent years, especially since Trump's election um, in 2016, there's been a, a break, increasing degrees of break between the messaging and reality, forcing a, a very interesting bit of... Bit of um, mental gymnastics from us watching things making sense and trying to triangulate into reality 
we we will see these things with these absolute proclamations from Ursula van der Leyen or whatever whatever talking head is is saying something about world history changing in our in our midst and then all of a sudden within two days um it's just dropped down memory hole as if it was never said because yeah reality isn't working out that way i mean specifically about ukraine and the eu what, what people don't seem to understand is that you know the eu most of these eu accession agreements have about 20 something chapters and um they each take about six months to to negotiate i mean that's at full steam ahead when you look at the history of states that have joined the EU and you look at the amount of, of negotiating that went into it, it was going on for quite a long time. And, um, you know, and that's not even including. So, yeah, that might be, you know, eight years or 10 years at warp speed. And but you need another couple of years before that to get other member states to agree on how you would deal with such a you know market distorting influence like Ukraine and then and then the issue of the war i mean they're just it's impossible like on six different levels that it's just stupid i mean it would take three hours to deconstruct one simple lie that's the problem with misinformation by the way is that you know so many more words because you're like well here's the background here's the real story you know here's what's gonna mm-hmm. happen whereas all that the other person has to do is just say some nonsense like ukraine's going in the eu you know and it's yeah. uh you know that's why big claims require big evidence that's why we do that and no one claiming that Ukraine is on the way into the EU has provided any evidence that that's fitting into the picture at all. We we have about six minutes, seven minutes, seven minutes before our next commercial break. And I I, I want to get your thoughts on some material regarding uh, North America, specifically uh, Latin America and Mexico. But before mm-hmm. we do that, I think that'll that'll be something we tackle after the break for our last segment. But um, quickly, is there any is there any resistance within Europe, within the industrial groups of the the parts of the oligarchy within or within the European zone who are obviously being flushed by the destruction of Nord Stream? The, the economy is constantly being tanked. Uh, agricult- industrial agriculture is being targeted for shutdown. Are there any forces that could wield, that have strength, whether in France or in Germany, that you can identify, which have a chance at uh, doing some combat and bringing in some some more sane orientation for sovereign nations of europe to uh survive this thing i do think so i do think so well first of all you have the most of we can with france we can harken back to the yellow jack to the yellow vests um we know that this represented a diverse group of french on the on the case of france for example very diverse we're talking about uh people that would be associated with independent small businesses um business owners uh, entrepreneurs labor the trade union confederation and and you know sort of you're in europe on the model of keeping world war ii alive um the system has hitherto succeeded in kind of compartmentalizing people into these left and right categories where the um, small businesses um and the ideology of small business owners saw that the threat from labor unions and radical leftists was was more of a threat than let's say the state and today people are seeing that the state as it exists and the the mega corporations which support that state and vice versa of uh, transnationals multinationals um that these are the greatest threat so you saw with the yellow vest a number of years ago this collusion and this coming together of forces that might be consult- considered left and right 
Um, and and moreover, when you're talking about Germany and France and the project with the with the crash course that Atlanticists have placed for Europe in its fight against uh, Russia in Ukraine, um, this is now bringing together an even bigger uh, coalition that involves not just in France, but also in Germany, Italy, Spain, other countries in Western Europe. But speaking in the case of Germany and France, because they lead so much of the EU uh, when it comes down to it, it's very clear that the industrialists, whether you're talking about Siemens or any of the big producers, uh, uh, Daimler, et cetera, these are these are um, companies that re that are based in the physical economy, Matt. And so when you look at Germany, for example, um, and you look at all the G7 countries, right, like because of what Schultz has committed Germany to in a kind of a kamikaze suicide pact fashion in its conflict against Russia in Ukraine, Germany right now is paying 1.6, 1.7 times the the um, the median price of energy for G7 countries. So they are so they are not competitive right now. They have no way of being competitive. Um, this is now going to lead, of course, to the next stage of of uh, cost push inflation in Europe. So and industrialists can see what's coming. People who own stock in those rights or not. So also people that are gaming stock markets, but they want, but maybe they they don't want to get out of those because they they have long-term investments or they have a long-term investment strategy. So what you're talking about investors, what you're talking about the the institutions themselves, the big uh, uh, industrial and productive forces in Europe, their employ their employees, civil society, most pluralist institutions. Like this is a silent majority, Matt, that is against this this collision course uh in in ukraine so there's more than hope it's really just a matter of time and i don't suspect there's going to be some kind of social revolution in western europe hopefully the elites just kind of pretend they didn't try this and kind of move on and kind of you know like we, they normally do but we'll see what happens um in in the last address just in in 20 seconds you know putin did like a question and answer session the other day it's a big one that they do every year, except for last year. And uh, it is very clear that um, Russia is looking to quickly restore and engage as soon as possible um, with relations with the U.S. Um, and that conforms to uh, my general line of forecasting that, um, you know, as even if Ukraine jumps the shark and especially if Europe somehow gets firmly behind Ukraine, I think the play is going to be against Europe and that you could even find some type of back channel or even overt coordination between the U.S. and Russia if somehow something crazy happens in Europe and Europe goes all in uh, backing Ukraine. Uh, so but those are the type of scenarios that, you know, we forecast um, and or, you know, look at what are the probabilities of those happening. They're very real. Joaquin uh, just referenced uh, the very important annual address by Vladimir Putin, which I highly recommend if people listening are not aware that Putin does this every year off the cuff dialogues with hostile media, friendly media, the people, leaders of nations every year. Uh, his stamina is outstanding. No, uh, uh, no little mouthpiece speaking into his ear, telling him what to say, like we have with certain talking heads in the West. It's fascinating to listen to. I highly recommend taking the three, four hours, whatever it takes to sit down and watch it, take some notes. Very fascinating stuff. Thank you, Joaquin. We're going to go in for a quick little break and we're going to jump back in to discuss Mexico. 
With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Stop letting leftists set the agenda. Stop letting them turn nothing burgers into the most pressing issues of the day. Stop letting them use words like inclusion, equity, fairness, and diversity as cudgels to beat you into submission. Stop bowing, stop scraping, stop bending the knee, and stop giving them what they desire, an abject apology, assuring them that they'll get their way and everything will be fine. Because it won't be fine. That won't be the last complaint. Every time you submit to them, you encourage them. You give them more fuel for their next attack. And it will go on for decades. The Onondaga Nation complained to Syracuse University about the Saltine Warrior mascot in 1978. And here we are, 45 years later, the Onondaga Nation is complaining to Liverpool High School about using Warriors as their athletic mascot. For 45 years it was fine, but now all of a sudden in 2023 it's not. Stop giving in to this culture of destruction. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome. Prediabetes does. One in three adults has prediabetes, but with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. And you can change the outcome. Take the one-minute prediabetes risk test today. Go to doihaveprediabetes.org. Matt Arrett and Connecting the Dots on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome back for the third part of our first hour with Joaquin Flores. Um, We've just been speaking a lot about Eastern Europe, the combat uh, of the collective West uh, in this kamikaze suicide pact, as you called it, against the uh, the possibility of something challenging the dream of hegemony of this new world order of a depopulated utopia where the elites know their place, partying in their castles and the the masses, the plebes are happy eating eating grass and bugs. Um, but there's there is there is certain disturbances in the illusion. Um, which makes life interesting right now to li- to be living in and and moving in. Um, I want to bring this discussion, as we we noted a little bit, into North America and specifically over uh, mati- dynamics that are un- unfolding in Mexico. Mexico under Obrador has uh, been pulled in also very different directions. We recently had Xi Jinping meeting with Obrador um, last month on the sidelines of a certain summit that happened in the United States and uh, discussions around economic development with Eurasia. But we've also had uh, Mexico being pulled into a very darker other or another darker uh, dynamic. There's we're hearing a lot of uh, discussions, even from uh, a lot of Republicans uh, about the need to militarily invade Mexico, even maybe before the elections that are scheduled in 2024 January. So could you say something about that? What's is there really a threat of US invasion? Or why would they be doing this? What, what's going on? Well, so yeah, there is a threat. And unfortunately, as I'm tracking this, it is a growing threat. And it's something that I'm happy to get out of kind of ahead of the curve here with you on connecting the dots, because this isn't something that I've spoken about anywhere else yet. And I've seen there's been a, a deafening silence from, you know, uh, alternative media, um, and there's been a a lack of focus on Mexico in general, um, which is interesting. 
but um you know it, it's difficult mexico doesn't get a lot of treatment and but yeah there's a very big threat um if i could just say really quick one the reason that i think mexico doesn't get a lot of treatment is that um a lot of the conservative forces in the us um don't really think about mexico that much independently of like immigration and illegal immigration um mm -hmm. which they're against understandably and then um and then the the left um you know they very, they play a very disingenuous game in analyzing um leaders of developing countries often because um even though many of these leftists come from traditionally colonial imperialist countries themselves um and haven't had any success in overthrowing their own ruling class they nevertheless proceed to criticize developing countries for having leaders that aren't like hardcore communists or hardcore enough whatever and um and of course in, in Mexico Obrador or we call him AMLO because it's short for his whole you know four four name name what is it Antonio Manuel Luis Obrador so we just say AMLO um and um he's you know he's a, a centrist that had used to be from the left and led a left coalition but then brought in um ultra conservatives to make a new movement called Moreno and you know having done that brought a lot of ire from the traditional left because he's doing something you're not allowed to do a little bit syncretic which is the no no bad bad thing to do nowadays so um by bringing together kind of traditional forces of the right and the left in a new alliance of national uh national renaissance is what Moreno stands for um uh they um they criticize you know the the position that they they criticized Mexico from the point of view of of the Mexico that AMLO inherited and then they they foment further criticisms based upon um really no true Scotsman fallacies so um there's not enough focus on Mexico for the past couple of Sorry, years Sorry when you just said two Scotsman fallacies what what is this I, oh, the no true Scotsman fallacies, like, you know, that um, a no true Scotsman fallacy people will know. Uh, there's that no true Scotsman um, would do the no true, you know, Mexican leader would do the things that AMLO has done. You know, why? Oh, well, a true Mexican leader would would say, um, you know, go F yourself, United States, because that's right. the fantasy of what like a leftist in the U.S. wants world leaders to say. Right. When right. So it's about like a, a, a pre-existing category that you're supposed to fit into makes you true in whatever uh, category. Okay, yeah, I got you. But you All can right. never you can never hit you can never reach that. Right. So. Yeah. Um, it's an unreachable standard, but the, the, the reality is that um, at the Democrat debates that occurred that you know very few people watched but this was when biden was you know at nine or ten percent um it was totally strange how he got the nomination anyway bernie was actually leading in, in many um indexes um and there was no way that biden um you know would have won that nomination fair and square um but we know about Buttigieg and the shadow app and things that going back to the ios straw poll etc one of the things that they were debating about, Matt, was should the U.S. invade Mexico? And this was mm. a literal question that was brought up a number of times. So as a Democrat question and 
almost all of them had a positive thing to say, like, yes, under these conditions, we should invade Mexico. Well, throughout the past couple of years, um, this was taken up by um, Dan Crenshaw, a uh, congressman from Texas, and others as well. Um, and But they're Republicans. So um, they're ostensibly you would invade Mexico, but not against the Mexican government, right? But to take out the narco-trafficking cartels um, and... But the Mexican government's been very clear, like, hey, um, we think that you guys are financing, like your CIA is like financing a number of these cartels. And the script just seems a little bit too much like ISIS in Syria, right? Obama ostensibly um, got the U.S. involved in Syria not to overthrow Assad, even though they were saying Assad must step down. The reason was to fight ISIS. And um, even though Assad was fighting ISIS, right? And Assad is like, you saying you're here to fight ISIS is like seriously destroying our ability to fight ISIS, right? So, um, because in fact, you're attacking us. And so it's such a thing, mission creep or just misrepresenting the point of the operation is what we would likely find from neocons like Crenshaw. And um, it's the reason that it is a very high probable issue to take off before election time is because it would allow Biden to um, commit force and be a wartime president, but not in a conflict that you have like in Ukraine that sets off all those triggers and the conflict, potential conflict with Russia. So there's not a lot of concern, you know, militarily that a conflict in Mexico would result in some type of uh, blowback or, you know, Mexico is not going to nuke anybody. They don't have nuclear weapons and things like this. So, um, and it's also something that a lot of the uh, Republican or conservative voters might approve of, right? Um, yeah. The idea of the U.S. invading Mexico, because this is like securing the border. I mean, this could start like we need, you know, the, uh, with Biden doing something like I'm going to send the U.S. military to secure the border, you know, and then it's going to be a lot of the, those Trump supporters that wanted be better border security. Right. Although many of them would never endorse invading because many the many of those same voters are totally against the forever wars. Right. And but we know that slippery slope mission creep. We send them to the border. Oh, now they're crossing into the border because they've been attacked by these uh, mm. traffickers or narco cartels. And so, well, let's say that we will cross the border to pursue, but we're not gonna cross the border unless we're to pursue them. Oh, well, now we're gonna set up a temporary base in Chihuahua or Zacatecas or wherever, you know, they can keep going deeper into the interior of Mexico, uh, Durango or wherever. So this is gonna be a big problem. And it's something that would be very divisive um, for Trump voters and also um, make Biden appear to be doing something that appeals to that segment of the of the of the electorate as we get into the next election, you know, coming up this year. So um, for all those reasons, it's a danger. I mean, it's literally been talked about. There are tons. That means that plans exist, of course, if it's being talked about at this level. Um, it was something that the DNC, because we know how staged those 2020 debates were. Uh, it's something that the DNC obviously knows very well that the permanent administration and military and CIA, of course, you know, have plans around. Right. They, they, it's it's something that 
when we first saw that come up in the debate is like, you know, that meme that's like nobody. And then U.S. let's invade Mexico. It's like that's what it totally was. I mean, where did this come from? Totally left field. Nobody was right. literally talking about this. So. Yeah, that's yeah. a great concern. No, absolutely. And and it also puts uh, a little bit more meat on the bones when people were many people were surprised during the last um a parade celebrating uh, Independence Day in Mexico that uh, the, the Chinese and the Russians were invited to have military delegations marching alongside the Mexican military, uh, which, again, certain people were caught off guard by this, but it was clearly um, a not too subtle message for those in the know about what not to do regarding certain uh, topics that you were just uh, raising just there. What do you think, though, of, of um, the broader orientation of mexico within the eurasian future do you think that that there's a, a chance of of mexico being able to deal with its uh narco terror isis problem um that's been cultivated by western intelligence banking for many many decades and and finally free itself of these problems by going towards a pro-development pro-nation state orientation of eurasia you know mexico has a population approximately the same size as russia's um they are a very they are a huge oil producer mexico is um one of the fights right now is in bringing uh, is in re-sovereignizing uh pemex this is one of the projects one of uh amlo's you know mid-term long-term projects to re-sovereignize pemex you know pemex is, was was established i think uh in the under cardenas during the great nationalizations in the 30s and um and over time they were privatized but they were privatized in the beginning like in a responsible way to mexican oligarchs but over time it was possible to sell those to foreign interests so then so so kind of in the discourse about nationalization or socialization which is more of a 20th century debate but in geopolitical terms what you're talking about is sovereignization versus desovereignization so you can you can keep something sovereign and you, it can be partly privatized or whatever, or mostly privatized. But so long as the revenues, you know, and the proceeds stay like have to be within the national bank. So the mm -hmm. oligarchs that own it, they get the proceeds, but those proceeds have to stay in the government state national bank, not a Swiss bank account, not in Cyprus or offshore, whatever. And, and that also about what you can do with that investment, right? Like, can you take the returns and then, invest in another country. So all those things would kind of undermine Mexico's sovereignty. So, you know, one of the simple solutions, though, that creates kind of the distortions in, in, in state control, though, has been to nationalize things. And, you know, by and large, that's the better option compared to it not being under your control at all, right? Having bleeding, bleeding your resources just around the world, global oligarchs just vampirizing your oil uh, wealth, right? So you've got that one issue. But you know, so Mexico's on the up and up and their economy's been growing. And um, in terms of, you know, regional spheres um, and multipolarity, um, you know, Mexico um, has a dynamic economy that should complement the United States. The United States, um, in terms of its future, um, is in integrating in various ways with Mexico and the Latin American economies. Right. Mm -hmm. But these have to be ways that are from the middle out and from the bottom up so that they're not, you know, just a rehash of American imperialism. 
right? Yeah. United Fruit, the US 10, US Steel, you know, these you know, have long plague countries like Chile, like Argentina, like Mexico, um, Cuba, et cetera. So we have to get past this um, 20th century discourse. But when the United States looks realistically at, you know, disinvesting from its efforts in the Middle East or getting out of thinking they're going to create Rumsfeld, you know, new Europe and have, you know, be backing Latvia and Poland like Ukraine to have kamikaze suicide missions against Russia, or to think that you're going to, you know, play Japan as the new Poland against China, Taiwan, like these are all stupid intrigues that are far outsized for a waning power like the United States. And for it to, for the United States to take what it has, right, and then reemerge in the next 20, 30 years, right, as a powerful state that isn't overreached around the world, that's going to be the United States as a land power, very much like Eurasian land power, Chinese mm. land power, African land power. Um, the United States, it, it's natural, right? It's only natural and, and therefore good if done the right way that they integrate into the Latin American economy. So, but the, yeah. but the, we're in the period of growing pains and, you know, we're in a paradigm shift in terms of how do American elites perceive that process? Like, do they feel like it's a, a white man's burden? Is it, do they think they're going to be, be doing nation building or democratization or is it going to be honest right so it's like yeah. well i think so looking, at, looking, looking at looking uh, at uh trump donald trump had a policy uh with obrador that involved i think he, the promise was something like 200 and some some big numbers something like 200 billion dollars in investments into uh high-speed rail electrification a new grid uh for mexico south and that would also involve three three of the big four countries adjacent to mexico uh, in Central America that would be in, like incorporated into a process of large scale economic development. I think the Mayan rail came out of that uh, process and all of this stuff was sabotaged from within Trump's administration. And obviously this is very different from the type of people who are pushing for the North American Union idea of centralizing the economy and integrating things, but through a system of controls for right. a master class that don't That's care right. about doing things in the real economy, which incorporate and transform the the people in a way that makes people live better, live happier, you know, lives and increase the power of the sovereign nation state to have industrial activity, which allows for economic sovereignty and decision making outside of a centralized bureaucracy. So it's a very different idea. And it's important for people to look at what Trump was actually bringing online that was challenging this uh, this sort of oligarchist structure. Uh, especially for yes. South America and, and you know, Mexico. And, and dovetailing on that, what you're saying is we, spot we have on. One and, and part of this industrialization and investment scheme or plan, if you will, scheme is British, it doesn't mean bad. Um, the, the scheme would involve um, so, mu so much capital influx into Mexico and development, right? So what does that do to the Mexican economy? And what are the signals that you send to the world and locally, right? So that would that would be the biggest very much like the the um the french and italian and russian investments into libya right that that transformed libya under gaddafi's leadership and you had all of this other uh, potentially migrant um potentially migrant um labor from africa that instead of going uh into uh, uh europe was in 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 uh libya so mexico in terms of el salvador guatemala or keeping mexican labor in mexico that would have been you know the solution to illegal immigration 
Absolutely. This is not magic. This is not, this is over obscured sometimes, but it's very important to take the words of Joaquin Flores very, very seriously. Thank you so much for elucidating our audience about some important, overly complexified dynamics and making them simple and intelligible. Where can people reach you? Telegram, New Resistance, at New Resistance is the best way. Thanks.